Well, after about seven weeks break, we now return to our series in the Gospel of Mark. So go ahead, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel and we're heading to chapter 11. If you're new with us this Sunday, Mark's Gospel is in the New Testament. It's one of the synoptic Gospels right at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and we're heading to Mark chapter 11. Now, for nearly a year, we have been working our way through this Gospel account written by Mark, a Jew concerned about getting the message of Jesus to the Gentiles or to the non-Jews. Now our last look was at the early verses of Mark 11 as Jesus heads towards his final ministry, that loving sacrifice for the sake of sinners. We learned how he arrived on a humble donkey and how the crowd declared the praise for Jesus, the one who was truly captivating them. Many of us were expecting Jesus to then begin tossing tables and getting rid of those people in the temple, but we were surprised to see that actually Jesus heads to the temple, has a look, and then retires for an evening of rest in Bethany. And so today we're going to be picking up after that rest on the next day as Jesus returns to the temple. Now the main thrust of the message today is this, let Jesus turn the tables of your life so that you will be known as one walking the walk. Let Jesus turn the tables off your life so that you would be known as one that is walking the walk. In other words, let Jesus transform you and renew you so that your very life will be an example of the gospel by which you have been saved. And if you're new to Lincoln Baptist Online, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be working through the passage, starting in Mark chapter 11 and verse 12, and we'll take it in small chunks, small sections, and explain as we go. And I hope what you will see is that Jesus renews and transforms lives, and if we allow him access to our life, he will change us into a new being, a new creation, so that we would be truly ambassadors of the gospel. And so we're going to be jumping right in at Mark chapter 11 and from verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could get anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, has taken a night's rest in Bethany, and now on the following day, Jesus and his disciples are going to return to Jerusalem. Verse 12 picks up on the journey between Bethany and Jerusalem. And as you can see from this map, they're likely between one and two miles away from the temple. Now, there is much debate over this passage. Did it actually happen? Or was Jesus just talking to his disciples and gave a spoken parable as they journeyed? The debate mainly comes from two puzzling aspects here. Firstly, it was the wrong season for figs to grow, meaning if Jesus was actually hungry, then he shouldn't have expected the fig tree to have any fruit on it. Secondly, Jesus spoke in destructive terms. Up to this point, every miracle that Jesus had done wasn't destructive, it was restorative. So there's a major shift here then in ministry. However, the notion that due to these difficulties, we would simply chalk this conversation up to the disciples as some form of spoken parable and it didn't really actually happen is ultimately a weak argument. Instead, we need to understand what is actually happening here. And that is we have an enacted 
parable. Now, a parable is a simple story to illustrate a spiritual lesson. And up to this point, Jesus has simply spoken the parables. We're now here in Mark 11, we have a parable on display. It's being acted out before the disciples. This was not about the hunger of Jesus. Rather, this was a teaching moment for the disciples. Now, back in Mark chapter 8 and 9, we saw the shift in ministry from Jesus to the crowds, now shifting to the disciples and ensuring the disciples knew what Jesus wanted them to know. And so this was a teaching moment for Jesus to give to the disciples. So let's look what's actually happening here. While on the journey, Jesus sees this fig tree. Specifically, the tree is in leaf. There is growth and signs of life. He walks over at it, hoping for some fruit, but is disappointed when he finds no figs are on the tree. And as the passage says, the reality is there wouldn't be any fruit because it's the wrong season. And so in response to this disappointment, Jesus curses the tree never to bear fruit again. Now, I want you to see the punishment wasn't because the tree didn't have any fruit. The punishment was because there was promise of fruit, because the leaf was there, yet it didn't deliver. Essentially, you could accuse this tree of false advertisement. It had the outward show of being fruitful, but it had no real substance at its core. Well, what's this spiritual lesson here? Remember, a parable is a simple story to give a spiritual lesson. We have an enacted parable, a display of a story to give a spiritual lesson. Well, the fig tree represents Israel, the people of God. Hosea 9.10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. And we also know the specific goodness of the fig tree is its fruit, Judges 9.11. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to hold sway over the trees? Jesus is declaring that Israel, God's chosen people, are now all about the outward show, their outward religious profession, yet no fruit and no goodness. And this makes sense when we understand the backdrop of Luke 19, just before Jesus enters Jerusalem. Luke records Jesus mourning over this great city and the people of God. Luke 19 verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down on the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is enacting out a parable to explain to the disciples that Israel, with its great city of Jerusalem and the temple that promises much, no longer delivers the goodness that God seeks. They're all about the show, all about the religious piety and nothing about the faithful goodness of God. Remember, Jesus knows he is a few days away from being killed for the sake of mankind. The people who are meant to show goodness, the sweet fruit of God, are now preparing themselves to kill the Messiah. So warped is their thinking and their theology that they therefore deserve to be cursed. And notice, the fig tree is cursed forever. 
never will fruit come from it. This is an eternal punishment for those who have rejected Jesus, who talk a good game and never able to back it up with real faithfulness. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. We seem to shift from this enacted parable declaring that Israel is really cursed because of their, their lack of fruitfulness. Now shifting to Jesus actually in the temple. He's now arrived into Jerusalem and gone into the temple. And it's helpful for us to understand more about the temple before we try to understand what is happening here with Jesus in this moment. The temple was to many Jews the central place of worship, a place where the presence of God was known. This particular temple was rebuilt by Herod the Great, known for his excellent architectural knowledge. It would have been a sight to behold in all the land. Now, as you can see from this picture, the holy place, that being the place where the high priest would commune with God, was in the centre. Just outside the holy place were various courts. The priest's court, the Israelites' court, the women's court and various chambers. Going out a little bit further, we then have the Gentile court. Now this courtyard was a dedicated place of prayer where both Jew and Gentile could pray and seek after the Lord. And for many it was as close to God's presence as they could get. Yet from the verses today, it seems a far cry from what it was meant to be. It is now a place for items being sold and bought and exchanges of money rather than that of prayer. You see, the priests have allowed two things to be established. First, for one of a better description, this courtyard for the Gentiles has become a marketplace. Jews from all over the world would travel to the temple in Jerusalem, specifically at Passover, but also at various points in the year. They would come and bring a sacrifice to the Lord. However, a sacrifice was to be without fault and without blemish and of the very best type. And so the temple priests often rejected the sacrifices that were brought because of the long journeys and the difficulty to bring those sacrifices to the temple. How nice of them. They have solved the problem. They would sell sacrifices in this courtyard to allow others to give a sacrifice to the Lord. However, this nice action was corrupt to the core. Prices for animals were inflated 10 times, 20 times, sometimes 50 times the real value, with all of the proceeds, all of the profit that's gained by corrupt practices going straight to the temple and the priests. Essentially, this marketplace exploited for its personal gain and greed. The second element that the priests allowed is the temple tax. Now in Exodus 30, Moses establishes the temple tax of half a shekel, not a lot of money, but equivalent to two days wages that was paid to the temple by every Jewish man older than 20 once a year. The temple tax was used to upkeep the temple and maintain its surroundings. Nothing was wrong in taking a temple tax. This is something that was established way into Old Testament times. But what was wrong is the greed and corruption of the temple. You see, the temple would only accept the tax in local currency. But with many people traveling towards Jerusalem from far away, they didn't have any local currency. They only had foreign currency. So the priests set up what they would define as a money exchange. They traded foreign currency for local currency. And of course, the temple would look to take a fee for this act of exchange. 
it was a racket to gain more income for themselves. And so you have these two corrupt practices. And what made it worse is these corrupt practices were in a place that was meant to be for prayer, leading the people to God. There was now a place of hustle and bustle and corrupt training for greed and income and money and wealth and richness. And so Jesus responds with a level of violence, overturning the tables, sending money flying, driving out those who would trade. And you can just imagine the chaos as the market stalls go flying, sending money everywhere, animals driving out of the whole courtyard and everyone just seeing this environment in chaos. Now the behaviour of Jesus is, is really quite shocking actually, isn't it? Till this point, Jesus may have spoken boldly, but every action was one of peace. He had never shown an action of anger, frustration or violence. But look at his response in John 2.16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus was jealous for the honour of God's house to be for God and not for some corrupt marketplace. And so he went into this temple and literally brought chaos to the sinful practice of corruption and greed. Now, I really need you to see something in this passage. We often teach it that Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and goes straight into the temple, shows anger and tosses everything off to the side. However, it doesn't happen like that. We need to understand the context of what is happening here. Because when we believe that Jesus comes in the donkey, goes straight to the temple and throws the tables, we often take it out of context and use it to justify our anger and our frustrations in our own lives. Yet Jesus first goes to the temple in the evening of the previous day. He then retires for a night of rest and then returns the next day. This was a calculated and planned moment. He didn't lose his rag or see some form of red mist and explode in anger. He knew what he was doing, he knew the actions he was taking, and he knew that it would shock everyone around him. And so we cannot use this passage to justify our anger and frustration because this wasn't about anger and frustration. This was about holiness. And this was about Jesus shocking the people to see how corrupt their practices had become. Verse 17, and he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. It's at this moment of utter chaos, with tables flying, money going all over the place, animals running all over the place, people screaming, the crowd screaming to Jesus, that Jesus stills himself and chooses to teach. My house is a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. And Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them a joyful place in my house of prayer. This is not a place to make money. This is not a place for corrupt practices. This is the place to pray, to humble yourself before the Heavenly Father, that awesome Creator God, and seek His grace and His mercy. The temple was to be a place that expressed what heaven would be like, that very presence of God, of worship, of prayer, and of adoration to the Lord. 
You see, in this quote towards Isaiah that Jesus uses, Jesus is giving scriptural basis to his actions for destroying this market and driving out the money changers. And time and time again, I've said this, if the Bible says we are to do it, then we are to do it. And if the Bible says we're not to do it, then we are not to do it. And the Bible is our foundation of what God expects. And in Jesus, we are given the strength to achieve it. Scripture, the the very words of God, gives Jesus the authority to drive out these sinful practices and seek to restore the temple courts to the place of prayer that it was meant to be. And what were the reactions? Well, there was two. The first coming from the religious leaders themselves. They sought to kill Jesus for they feared him. They feared his teaching. They feared the loss of followers. They feared the popularity of Jesus. They feared that he spoke truth and they feared that somehow he had the authority to transform the world around them. The second reaction came from the crowd and that was one of astonishment. Jesus captivated their attention and their hearts. He spoke with such clarity and spoke words that convicted. They were drawn to Jesus and they were drawn away from their actions. And you would think this is the moment to capitalise on the teaching that Jesus is giving here. But instead, we read once again that Jesus retires to Bethany, seeking not to overstay his time at the temple or in Jerusalem. You see, this has got nothing to do about anger and frustration. This has got everything to do with holiness and everything to do with teaching the word of God to bring people back into righteousness. And so Jesus goes into this environment, causes chaos, then stills everyone around the word of God. And it's upon the word of God that people either reject in the religious leaders or accept in the crowd. So this was no rash decision. This was calculated and planned. And Jesus was showing how he has the authority as the son of God. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, the disciples and Jesus continue on their journey. They've been in Jerusalem, in the city, in the temple. They have continued now on their journey. And the Lord's curse has been effective and immediate. The fig tree that bore much promise but couldn't deliver was now cursed for eternity. And the effects of the curse is clear. The fig tree is dead. Peter is shocked. And we establish this by him saying, Rabbi, look, he couldn't believe his eyes what he was seeing. This plant, this fig tree that once had leaf, that once had promise of fruit, is now withered and dead and barely a few hours have passed. Maybe the disciples hadn't understood the event before the temple. Maybe they had forgotten about it. Maybe they just didn't believe in the curse itself. But no matter the reason, Jesus has been effective and the disciples have truly been shocked by his actions. Do you see now, though, in the light of the events at the temple, the correlation between the fig tree and the people of God? The people of God have promised much and they have completely and utterly failed. More than that, they've now gone in corrupt ways and even further towards putting Jesus to death. Jesus shows how the fig tree that promised much is truly cursed, how Israel, Jerusalem, the temple has promised much and they are soon to put to death the Messiah, who they should be declaring and who they should be declaring his love for the nations. How does Jesus respond to the withered fig tree and the shock of the disciples? We go to verse 22. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, 
whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Jesus gently rebukes the lack of faith on display here with his disciples. They shouldn't have been surprised. They should have known that Jesus has the power and authority. And then he takes a general point to explain a specific point, that prayer requires faith. If you want to move a mountain, you must have faith. If you want to curse a fig tree, it happens through faith. If you want to find Jesus and have true transformation, it comes by faith. Now make sure you understand what is happening here. Jesus is not advocating for us to pray that the beautiful mountains of Scotland would be moved to the flatlands of Lincolnshire. And if we just have enough faith, it will happen. He is using this phrasing to help us understand if it is in the will of God, then pray in faith and it will happen. Recently, a member of our church had COVID-19. Upon news of worsening symptoms, we called an emergency prayer meeting and we prayed that God would heal this individual and would bring about a recovery. Praise God, he heard our prayers and brought healing to the individual. However, I want to be clear, we would still be praising God if there wasn't healing because God would still be working in this person's life and God can still be praised that his plan and purpose is perfect. You see, whether our prayer is answered as yes or no, God is still in control. God is still has the authority and God still has the power to show that he is the Almighty. So yes, our faith welled up so that we would pray that someone would be healed, but we prayed as the will of God, not our will, but your will be done. And the Lord blessed us with answered prayer. Prayer with faith seeks the will of God. Our faith trusts that what will come to be will be exactly what the Lord wants. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. Our prayers are yes, to be prayed in faith, but also in forgiveness. We ourselves have received grace and forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the very core of us, we should seek the same for others. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. We're not talking about uh, not annoying people or just avoiding people we don't like. We're talking about a peace that comes from forgiving our enemies, forgiving the wrongs committed by others and seeking forgiveness for the wrongs that we have committed. And if we ourselves refuse forgiveness towards others, then we give it no place to thrive and act in our lives. And therefore, how can the Lord forgive one who is so bitter? And I want you to see here that it says, if anything has been done against you, anything, we are to be a forgiving people. You see, prayer has the power to remove difficulties if prayed in faith. Prayer should be expectant if prayed in faith and prayers should be charitable with forgiveness. William Barclay wrote, the prayer of a bitter man will not penetrate his own bitter heart. We all know bitter individuals, don't we? And the sad thing about bitterness is that it wrecks your own life more than it wrecks others because your prayers go hitting against that bitter heart and it never leaves. And so we are to pray with forgiveness and with faith.
What a whirlwind of a passage, isn't it? One that handles faith and prayer and corruption and one that sees what it means to serve the Lord, not just on the face of it, but at the core being fruitful and good. In our remaining time, let me just take you to four application points for each of us this week. The first one is this, walk the walk. The fig tree showed us what it meant to promise much and deliver nothing. The temple showed us what it meant to promise much and deliver corruption. The disciples show what it means to promise much but be bitter inside. In all three circumstances, the show doesn't match up with the substance within. At best, it's false advertising. At worst, it's Satan's men masquerading as followers of Jesus. Let me ask you today, are you walking the walk? Are you really who you say you are? Are you really portraying the gospel of Jesus in your actions, in your thoughts and in your speech? Are you abiding by Philippians 1.27? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's get real today with each other. The social media use of some Christians is truly shocking and not worthy of Jesus. The apathy towards daily devotions and not seeking Jesus on a daily basis doesn't speak of a life worthy of the gospel. The politics inside the church, the backbiting, the complaining, the lack of forgiveness, the selfish desires of Christians speak more of Satan than it does of Jesus. And as Paul once said, that should not be so in the church. It's time that we've got to cut this nonsense out of our lives and out of the church. It's time we walk the walk, be known as individuals that promise much and in Jesus deliver on those expectations. It's time we get serious about the gospel and get serious about Jesus so that we're not some withered fig tree off to the side because we dare promise much and deliver too little, but we would be a flourishing people of God because we have promised much and through the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have delivered on those expectations, sharing the gospel, living the gospel, speaking the gospel, thinking the gospel, and at the core of our hearts are gospel-minded. The second thing I want you to see is that we need to let Jesus turn the tables of our lives. I was really challenged this week as I studied this passage. My life is to be a holy sacrifice to the Lord. I'm to be set apart and to honour him in all of my actions. Yet like the temple here, Mark 11, I have corrupt practices in me. I have tendencies to sin. And on so many occasions, I have robbed the Lord of glory by turning to sin rather than Jesus. I found myself praying this prayer. Lord, turn the tables in my life. Get right into the very core of my heart and flip those tables. Send my sinful desires flying and running from my heart. Captivate my very soul and turn the tables so that I would transform and be renewed and redeemed in you. Friends, are you ready for our Lord Jesus to turn the tables in your life? Are you ready to say, Father, I am all for you. Rid me of sinful action. Rid me of sinful thought. Lay destruction to the tables of corruption and help me seek a better gospel-minded life in you. My sincere encouragement this week is to let the Lord Jesus do a number in your life. Let him blast your heart. Let him grab hold of you and renew you, transform you and sanctify your very soul. And that is my prayer for us as a church that is my prayer for you as an individual. And that is my prayer for myself, that we would be more like Jesus 
less like this fig tree, less like this temple, less like the disciple, less like ourselves and more like Jesus as he turns the tables of sin in our hearts and sanctifies our very souls. Thirdly, our application today is be marked by faith and forgiveness. What are you marked by? How do people describe you? We could describe the disciples here as lacking faith. We could describe the temple as a den of robbers. We could describe the fig tree as false advertisement. How are you described? Do people say, wow, his or her faith is rock solid and when trials come, they just cling on like nothing I've ever seen before? Or do they say, I would never have forgiven them, but this friend of mine shows such compassion like nothing I've ever seen before and they forgave that individual. Faith in Jesus and a forgiving heart should be evident in how you live. And let me put it another way. Does your neighbour even know that you're a Christian? Does your interactions online lead people to believe that you follow Jesus? Does your own family know of your faith in Jesus? John MacArthur once said, A responsibility is simply to make our witness faithful. It is God's responsibility alone to make it effective. Are you giving God something he can work from? Let us seek to be faithful, trusting in the Lord, forgiving those who do us wrong and living a life worthy of the gospel calling. Because when we are marked by faith and forgiveness, then the Lord can take that and make it into an effective ministry, one that would be tenfold, twentyfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold in reaching people for the sake of Christ. It's a simple yet bold statement. Get your life in order for Christ and then Christ can take your life and use it for unbelievable ministry. But it will always start with this. At core, are you living a life worthy of the gospel, one marked by faith and forgiveness? Uh, fourth and finally, the kind of fourth application we can take from this passage is this. Be expectant. Be expectant. I love the withered uh, fig enacted parable. It shows us that when Jesus says something, it's going to happen and you better believe it's a certainty. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What has Jesus said? We will be given victory. What has he promised? That we will be more than conquerors. And you better believe he is going to do and keep that promise. We can say, get behind us, Satan, for we know where he belongs. We know that we have already defeated him through Jesus. He is already crushed. He has no hope of taking this soul. For this soul is safe and secure in the victorious hands of Jesus. And this soul is more than a conqueror. Be expectant. Pray for souls to be saved and expect them to be saved. Seek the word of God and expect to know more of God. Get involved in missions and expect to travel the globe taking the word of God to people. Throw your energy into gospel ministry and expect to see the Lord do mighty things. Friends, we here at Lincoln Baptist are expectant. We believe now more than ever we need to seek the Lord and we expect the Lord to do great things. Only just last week, someone sent us an email to say that halfway through the message, they gave their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are expecting that the Lord will do that again and bring people to Jesus. 
We believe that right now souls need Jesus and we're expecting that the Lord is going to use us to reach them. You see, we don't want normal. We don't want even a new normal. We want the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be immersed in him, captivated by him, and we are expecting of a victorious ending. And you better believe we are marching into 2021 knowing that Satan will try and attack, knowing he will try and destroy, but knowing he doesn't have a hope in this world of taking victory from our hands. For we are praising our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the mighty Lord. We are living by faith because Jesus has been victorious. We are forgiven because he has been forgiving us. And we know that our Lord Jesus Christ will ask of us much and we are expectant as we give him much of our lives. Let us pray together as we seek to live for Jesus this week. Father, we do thank you for the passage we've been able to go through. Uh, Father, we are sorry that we can so often be like that fig tree, like that temple, like the doubting and unbelieving disciples. Father, we are sorry that we can be so corrupt and twisted in sight. But Father, praise Jesus for his forgiveness is transforming us and renewing us. Father, turn the tables in our lives so that we would be all for Jesus. Father, help us be expectant. Help us pray knowing that you're hearing us and knowing that you will act in our times. Father, we pray that this week you would do great and mighty things through your church. Father, we pray that souls will be saved today. We pray that this week we'll be launching into brand new ministries. We pray that this week we'll be a church family known by faith, known for forgiveness. And Father, we pray that you would get the glory in all things. Let us not rob you of your glory that you deserve by turning to sin. Instead, Father, we pray that you would find glory in our lives as we seek Jesus in all things. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.